Hey everybody, Doug here. Before we get started with the show, I want to tell you about a new book that Peter and I have published called From the Earth to the Moon, the miniseries companion. If you love space and space exploration and movies and television shows about space and space exploration, this is for you. If you think you've read it all and know everything there is to know about the moon flights, we want you to think again. Uh, in 1998, the landmark TV series, From the Earth to the Moon, aired on HBO in 12 episodes, told the daring story of NASA's Project Apollo to put humans on the moon. Our book provides a comprehensive and detailed analysis of each episode of the miniseries and covers Apollo from start to finish and then some. It's more than a simple episode guide. Our companion reevaluates the entire Apollo program, both within and outside the context of the HBO series. We review the choices that the filmmakers made regarding the actors, special effects, and historical accuracy in every episode. We show what they got right, what they got wrong, and what they didn't tell you about each of the historic moon flights. Um, we cover all manned Apollo missions, the creation of the lunar module, the Apollo 1 fire and its aftermath, the personal and professional highs and lows of the astronauts, and lots of key NASA personnel. As an added bonus, the book includes an in-depth interview that I did with Andrew Chaikin, author of A Man on the Moon, the book that was the basis for the entire miniseries. It also includes 35 great images, many of which I can guarantee you've never seen before. Um, you can buy the book on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or any of the book reader platforms. Uh, again, uh, we hope you check it out, and uh, on to the show. Thanks. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. You've got speed, John Glenn. Okay, everybody, welcome to episode four of season one of the Right Stuff Companion. Uh, I remain uh, Doug, and my co host, as always, is Peter. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. And here we are um, at episode four of uh, the Right Stuff uh, on Disney. Um, they are, um, I think they're kind of getting their legs underneath them a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the show is getting, I think, honestly, more watchable and more interesting. Uh, again, we've we've said this before, like they had a very, very rough first episode that I think probably hurt them in terms of getting viewership. But I feel like the show is picking up steam. Yeah, I think they really misjudged the first episode. I wonder how much I'm sure that, you know, in, in Hollywood, they know exactly how what percentage of people will bail on one episode um in general or they have a range at least and i bet you they lost some people with the show i'm sure they did and it's a shame too because you know that first episode is it's like you'll never have that chance again to capture the viewer you know as frank herbert author of dune famously said the beginning is a very delicate time like you got to get it right you know and if you don't <laughs> you're always behind you know well, you know, Seinfeld took whatever two, three seasons really to hit its stride, right? But you know, this is not going to be Seinfeld. <laughs> no, no, this is about as far from that as you can get. Right? Um, yeah. Well, but you know, again, but you know, in the in the modern world, I don't think an audience is going to hang out that long. You know what I'm saying? Like, like there's so many media outlets and TV shows to watch. You know, this isn't like when there were you know three networks and and you know there were limited 
programming opportunities. Like people can just turn this off and watch The Mandalorian or Clone Wars or something else on Disney Plus or any of the other streaming services they have. You know, like so it's I think it's even tougher. You know, a show nowadays gets two, three million views. It's a giant hit. There are so many good things to watch, you know, on especially on the cable services like the, you know, the chat like HBO on demand and Oh, um, yeah. And there's YouTube, you know, I mean, there's just tons yeah. of stuff. I mean, we have, I mean, we're just, you know, in one household, we have Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, a Roku, and we pay for cable, which is insane. Yeah. Hulu and we yeah, have Hulu. We don't have and, Hulu, but. Yeah. Um, Amazon, so, right, you mentioned that. Yeah. So this is um, episode four, uh, titled Advent. It is uh, directed by Nick Copas. It is written by uh, Vinny Wilhelm, and it uh, first aired on October 23rd of 2020. Um, and a lot of this has to do with sort of the growing pains of, the, of NASA, right? And not just the astronauts, which have been much more the focus in the earlier episodes. This is more about craft to a large extent. Yeah. Um, so we begin, um, just to jump in, we begin with the launch of Luna 3, which was a Russian spacecraft unmanned that did uh, succeed in photographing for the first time ever the so-called dark side of the moon, which isn't really dark. Um, and they were able to transmit images back well, to the Sometimes Earth. it is. <laughs> About as much as the other half. <laughs> um, and they were able to transmit images back from cislunar space. So it was considered a very, very big technical achievement. Um and this is, you know, yet again, another sign that the Russians are ahead, right? They're able to, you know, boost a heavy object all the way to the moon. Yeah, right? send back pictures. That's pretty cool. Right. But again, sort of further showing their, their, their greater heavy lift capability, right, with their ICBMs. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we haven't even, you know, we've barely done anything, right? And they're, they're, putting, they're putting stuff around the moon. Right. Um, it's not just Sputnik. They're basically like they're. If you have a tendency to be paranoid, that this is a good time to get there, right at this time, because they are racing ahead. I mean, just they're making one milestone after another. Yeah, and Luna Three. Um, I mean, it's a, it, it weighs six hundred and fifteen pounds, so the, the the payload is big. You know what I'm saying? Like they're they're doing uh, they're they're making real headway. Um, you know, you, you got to, uh, you got to give the Soviets credit. You know what I'm saying? Like they, this is a huge technical accomplishment. Well, you know, the old adage that they had the best, you know, German rocket scientists. <laughs> or, or to quote Werner von Braun in the movie, the Germans are not better than our Germans. <laughs> <laughs> Except they probably were. Um, so uh, we then cut to Cooper in the simulator. Gus is also uh, running in some sims. And then we, we have a scene of uh, Glenn Lunny, uh, Chris Craft, and Bob Gilbreth, where they uh, basically find out that they are giving Von Braun uh, the, the sort of the, the, the helm for the next launch because they're so embarrassed by the, the MA1 failure that we saw in the episode, that in the end of episode three, 
Um, you know, and there's there's mention of lots of exploding rockets. We don't see anything besides uh, MA1 in the last episode, but there's mention of other exploding rockets. And Kraft explicitly says that Von Braun is a Nazi, right? And, and he doesn't trust him, which is interesting because... You know, um, in in the Right Stuff movie, Von Braun plays a very very small role. You know, in the um, in the Apple TV series, I don't know if you've watched For All Mankind, which is part of it. a lot. It's a lot to say about that. A lot of a lot of good and an awful lot of bad in that series, but a lot of that show revolves around the fact. And granted, that's a purely fictional show, but a lot of that right. show revolves around the fact that. You know, Von Braun's Nazi past cannot be forgotten by people around him. Um, but, you know, there is a fear that the Russians are lapping them and they have somehow just got to catch up. And maybe, maybe Von Braun is the answer. I mean, you know, right. Von Braun wasn't like a, a Nazi with a lowercase n. He was like a Nazi in all caps. Like, he was a Nazi party member. He was a member of the SS. He oversaw slave labor at Pinamunda. Like, there's absolutely no way to sugarcoat anything about Von Braun. But he was just following orders. <laughs> he said his... Uh, we talk about this in our book a little bit, Peter and I, but he said, he famously said that... Um, uh, you know, like he knew that using slave labor was the only way that he could, you know, keep his work going, which is, you know, a pretty, pretty shitty and horrible excuse. Yep. You know, and well, again, you know, let's not forget the V1 and the V2. You know, I'm I'm right. sure that the, the British uh, looked none too favorably on him. Well, but, you know, in that part, yes, it's terrible because it's unmanned, but there was plenty of civilian bombing going on everywhere. Absolutely, but still, you know, he was, you know, launching V two rockets at uh, at London, right? And hence the right. The title of his autobiography is right. I said, "I aim for the stars," and Mort Saul humorously subtitled it. But sometimes I hit London. Hit London, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very clever. You know, line. I mean, if 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 Captain Kirk had not pulled Edith Keeler, right? If he if he had let Edith Keeler get run over by that truck. You know, with right. the Germans would have gotten the A bomb first, and with their V two rockets to carry them, they would have captured the world. So, you right, know, I'm sorry, Friedrich Keeler, but at least you know Captain Kirk had the presence of mind to step in at the just the right moment there. Edith Keeler must bones. die. <laughs> okay, um, so there's actually a pretty good scene where Gus runs into von Braun at the, at the bar, and it's like it's Christmas time, and von Braun is sort of bizarrely dressed as Santa Claus. Um, and and Von Braun throws a lot of shade at Chris Kraft and basically says, like, you're not getting anywhere because of Kraft. And he's a loser and he's a bitter guy and he wanted to be a pilot and he's got a deformed hand and he wasn't allowed to fly. And that's why, you know, you're having all this trouble because you've put the wrong guy in charge. The bit, by the way, about Kraft having a deformed hand is actually true. He he had a he was in a fire when he was three. And he did have a, a hand injury. So he was actually uh, denied entry into the Navy in 1942. It's amazing that in World War II, you could be denied the entry into the Navy. Mm. Um, and then Gus kind of leaves this awkward meeting with Von Braun, and he goes and finds Kraft, who's basically working alone in the Mercury blockhouse, uh, trying to sort of 
figure out what's going on. And then Gus and Kraft have a, actually, it's kind of a good scene. It's the first kind of scene where they humanize Kraft a little bit. Like up until now, he's been kind of a stern asshole. Yeah. Um, and they have what, what looks like, I think it looks like it's some scotch or something. And they had, they drink out of, you know, kitchen glasses and, you know, he says to Kraft, he says, why did you want pilots? You know, like, like you're not letting us fly the thing. Why did you go all this trouble to pick pilots if you're not letting us fly? Um, and uh, it's a good scene where, like, you, you know, you kind of, you, you know, Kraft gets to see the astronaut's point of view and maybe the way that he hadn't, and Gus gets to see Kraft's point of view, you know, and and Kraft is he conveys to Gus like we have got to catch up, you know. You can see like this is taking a huge personal toll on Kraft. You know, like America is behind and he feels responsible. Um, we then see an, a really interesting scene uh, where uh, the astronauts confront uh, an engineer and basically say that they have to be able to fly the Mercury capsule. And this is kind of a redo of the scene in the prior episode. It's also a redo of the scene in the 1983 movie. Um, and they're able to convey a little bit better in this episode that the astronauts' point of view has merit and that they're, they can't just be occupants, right? They've got to be pilots and they've got to have the ability to fly the spacecraft. And it's probably a little bit more realistic than it was done in the Right Stuff movie. Um, yeah, it was over-dramatized. It was. They also, they yeah, said against it. the lone sort of, you know, German engineer with von Braun standing behind him. And they um, say it like right when they first see the capsule. Right, and they're wearing their Mercury suits in that scene to make it even right. more dramatic. Uh, but you know, here, like they give the astronauts voices, like they give they give voice to their concerns in a way that's more reasonable. You can kind of also get a sense that the astronauts realize that they have a little bit of burgeoning political power within the organization, and they can exert that at choice moments. And this is a choice moment. Uh, they've they've got to they've got to somehow, you know, reclaim the mantle of being pilots because they know that the Soviets are not flying, right, their craft. They're, they're very much, you know, uh, much more passive in terms of the degree of control that they have compared to the American plan. Um, and then the whole episode kind of shifts gears to kind of a bit of melodrama. There's about, there's about 10 minutes of melodrama here where we see, Al Shepard with uh, his new ally, Dee O'Hara, going shopping for a gift for a little girl, and she suggests a Barbie. And then we discover that Al and his wife are taking in his wife's sister's daughter. And we learn that the wife's sister, um, Louise Shepard's sister's daughter, sorry, Louise Shepard's sister has died, and they are taking right. in uh, the orphan. Eight Right, an eight-year-old girl. Well, you know, it's funny because they don't really say what happened to the father. I'd have to look that one up and see. But, you know, they're taking in the daughter, whose name is Judith. Uh, and then uh, there's a scene where they um, uh, are at the a train depot and they pick her up. I have a feeling, by the way, that's the famous uh, train depot in Santa Paula where they, they film a lot of train scenes in movies and TV shows because it looks very, very old-fashioned. Mm. Uh, but I have a feeling that's the Santa Paula train station, which is kind of near Ventura and Oxnard. Um, and, uh, and then uh, we shift back to uh, Mercury Atlas, uh, Mercury Atlas one, right? The sorry, Mercury Redstone one, right? The the famous, the, uh, the so-called the four-inch flight, right? 
Um, and uh, it's also referred to as the popped cork fiasco, where um, Mercury Redstone 1 is on the pad, fueled and ready to go. And uh, they give it the signal to launch. And uh, it just lifts off the pad, the engine fires, and then the engine cuts off. And then it settles back down to the pad. So it's standing on its own weight, completely vertical, but it is not attached to the ground or the pad, or any umbilical in any way, shape, or form. That is full of fuel. It's completely full of fuel. Fuel and oxidizer. Um, and then, uh, while everybody is sort of standing there holding their breath, um, the uh, escape system takes <laughs> off, right? Boom. Yeah, the, hence the cork popping. Well, first, the escape rocket goes and then that unveils the top of the mercury capsule and then the actual the pop cork as the capsule deploys its drogue parachute right um so the parachute then kind of falls over the side and is is sort of blowing in the breeze and they suddenly realize that if the parachute catches some air it's going to pull the rocket over kablooey right and there's this there's this great moment of of panic and then um there's a completely fictional scene uh, where uh, Chris Kraft races from Mercury Control out to the blockhouse, sort of driving through the gate and yelling and screaming. Um, and he physically tackles uh, some engineer who's holding a rifle because they, they were thinking that maybe, as portrayed in the show, they're thinking maybe we could shoot a hole in the side and vent the fuel. Um, right. and, and there's a sort of like ridiculous scene. I'm sorry. It's just, it's moronic where he like tackles this guy. It's stupid. Now right. in real life, in real life, they did actually discuss shooting it with a rifle, but that was as far as it got. Right. They were trying to decide what do we do with this thing? That's dangerous and full of fuel and right. hyper dangerous. And can it, fall it's basically over. a bomb. Right. Although, it, you know, they, they it's not like they haven't blown over. They haven't blown up before. They just haven't been dragged over onto their side. Right. And they were also worried it would destroy the pad, right? It's very different to blow up in the air, right? right. Out over the Florida waters than it is to blow it up on the pad and destroy the pad, right? In the facility. Right. It'll take them backward further. Right. So they, the, after some, uh, after some, uh, some searching, they they basically conclude that the answer is to do nothing. And actually, it actually leads to Kraft coining a very famous term that in space flight, if you are not sure what to do, do nothing, right? So the answer turned out to be was just let the batteries discharge. And when the batteries run out, the oxidizer, sorry, the oxidizer would just boil off and then the rocket would essentially empty itself. Um, the liquid oxygen, right? It would right, just yeah, boil locks. off into right. It right. would just boil off into gaseous oxygen and drift away. Right, and then the rocket is de facto saved. You know, they don't they don't really explain a lot. So in reality, like when they investigated this thing, it's actually worth thirty seconds to talk about. They discovered that the the engine shut down early because two of its electrical cables separated from the pad in the wrong order. And then what happened was the the engine shut down and it sent a normal cutoff signal right to the capsule and its systems, right? So that's why when the capsule receives the normal engine cutoff signal, 
it would uh, jettison its escape rocket, right? Which is what had happened. Like that's why the escape rocket goes off. And then it would fire the explosive bolts holding the capsule to the booster. But in this case, the capsule didn't jettison, um, even though uh, the signal was was committed, the actual capsule didn't separate. But because the signal to separate went through, even though the capsule didn't separate, that's why the parachute recovery system activated because the capsule thought it had separated from the booster and was at a different point in the mission profile. So, so it actually kind of makes sense, like why this bizarre chain of events actually happens. Um, right, and they could really figure that out. Right, but they, but they couldn't figure it out at the time. You know, they had to sort of like put it all together afterwards, and then they made changes to the subsequent Mercury Redstone so that this could not um, happen again. So that was that was sort of uh, that's basically what you actually see here. Though they don't really go to any pains to explain it. Like you just sort of see the fiasco, right? So again, this is on the heels of Mercury Atlas One. Now they've had another huge, you know, political and media embarrassment, right? The thing just looks ridiculous, hmm. right? With that with that drogue parachute. Popping off. It's it's shown in um in the right stuff movie, um the just the end of uh, Mercury Redstone one is shown is part of a montage of rockets blowing up, and it's the last one that they show in the montage, and it's sort of like it's they, like they comic sort of, relief exactly, and they sort of humorously play this sound of like a boop like a cork coming out of a a bottle, you know, to just sort of mock it, but they don't. Um, in, in the movie, they don't give you any context at all, whereas here they show it, but they actually omit a lot of the sort of context to tell you what actually happened. Um, what was I going to say? But, you know, to, to bring it right back to where we were earlier in the episode, Von Braun blames Kraft directly. He, he says, this is your fault. And he said, your policies and procedures are shit. And this is why you can't get a rocket up in the air. So, um, we then cut back to uh, a little more melodrama. Uh, back, sorry, back at the train station, there's a crowd scene, and uh, Lurleen, Gordo's mistress, is there, and she hands him a note. Um, uh, we then cut uh, to the Shepherd household, where they we find out that they renamed Judith. Martha to avoid confusion, which is a little bit of a bizarre thing. I guess they're sort Weird. of saying like, this is your new life. So you're a new person. I don't know. It's very odd. Although Weird. it did happen in real life. They did, I believe, rename this girl. Um, and uh, so, so we're sort of knee deep in all this sort of like house melodrama. There's a related scene uh, where uh, you see Louise Shepard is sort of adjusting to this little girl who's in their midst. Um, and and I'm going a little bit out of order here because I want to stay with the, the Shepard household for a little bit. They have an extremely unpleasant, intense Christmas dinner when Shepard's father comes. Um, and he is a very high-ranking army officer, and he kind of like pisses all over Alan everything he's doing. He belittles ball him. Laughs. Yeah, he belittles him. He belittles Al's patriotism, his parenting skills, NASA, the space program. Like this is in front of, you know, uh, Al Shepard's entire collected family. 
Um, it's like a nice contrarian viewpoint to the hero worship that you see everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, and and uh, it's really tense. Like, honestly, it's more tense than the Mercury Redstone launch, right? This little bit of family drama. Like, you're you're kind of gritting your teeth through it, you know? And then uh, Al has to kind of put his father in his place. Like the the father, Al Al Shepard Sr., uh, is even he's even mean to the little girl, right? The newly adopted little girl. Like he kind of like slaps her arm because she puts her elbow on the table. Um, and then Al basically says, like, in my house, we do it my way. And then he kicks them out. He says, Well, now that she's here, there's no room for you. And you guys have to go to a hotel, right? And he kind of he kind of pushes back and kind of politely says to his father to get out. Yeah. So it's an interesting scene. And by all accounts, Al's father was a pretty stern guy. Let's just put it that way. Um, uh, shifting a little bit from the Shepherd household to the Glenn household, uh, we see uh, Glenn is very, very worried about the upcoming election because they think Nixon might win, right? This is 1960. They think Nixon might win and he, he wants Kennedy to win. Shepard, sorry, Glenn is obviously a Democrat. And there's a scene where, where uh, 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 Glenn and his wife, Annie, are doing some sort of, sort of bizarre exercise together. And, um, and, you know, Annie says to him, like, you've got to change Kennedy's mind because they're worried that Kennedy is not is sufficiently supportive of the space program. And she basically says to him, like, use your ties and use your connections and find a way to get to Kennedy and make him a supporter of the space program. Which is an interesting scene that sort of like they portray it as Annie kind of like pointing him in the right direction and giving his marching orders. I'm not sure that that's how it really happened. Yeah. I certainly don't exercise like that. I'm still not... I don't know. Were they doing some sort of Maybe bizarre calisthenics? What were they doing there? That was 1960. <laughs> Isometric exercise? I don't know. They were doing something there. Yeah, I think they mailed away for the how-to packet out of the back of a comic book. Yeah. <laughs> don't get sand kicked in your face at the beach. <laughs> oh, and by the way, Isometrics. By, these, by these sea monkeys. Um so then no, that, we cut. talk about disappointing. <laughs> I know. I remember as a kid, just, just to totally derail us for a second, I really believed that the sea monkeys looked like they did in that picture in the back of the magazine. Like, I remember distinctly, I had an Archie comic that had the sea monkey ad, and they looked like a little, like, royal family. You know, like, there was, like, a man with a crown and a woman with a crown. And, and I was like, what is this thing? Sea monkeys? I just remember I was probably like six reading this Archie comic. I just was so like captivated by it. And I asked my mom if I could get it. And she was like, no, absolutely not. And then I was at my buddy Joshua's house and he had them. And I was so like disappointed, you know, when I actually saw what the hell it was, you know, Brian shrimp. Really? Yeah. They weren't nearly as playful as they seemed on the no, And they died in about, you know, an hour. <laughs> You know, in, especially when you were disappointed and poured them into the toilet. <laughs> well, also, I'm sure they weren't made to live in, you know, tap water, <laughs> right? <laughs> With no, no food to eat, right? 
No, I think you could. They'd live for. I th- no, I think they live for like a week or two. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't. All I can tell you is that I went to my friend's house and he had them, and I remember. I literally remember just being like, you know, in the way that only like a six year old can be disappointed, like just like so let down. Like I wanted to see the king with his crown. Anyway, um, uh, to, to we then cut to the Cooper household, and and Gordo very suspiciously goes out right and we saw when gordo came home on i guess it's supposed to be christmas eve he he rips up lurleen's letter which is basically saying come meet me at this hotel right for a quickie or a longie right um and uh and he he tears up the letter he throws it in the trash and and then he kind of like very conspicuously makes a patently false excuse about going out to look for a tree when they have one and Trudy is rightfully suspicious, and she uh, stumbles on. She goes out to take out some trash, and she stumbles on Lurleen's letter in the garbage, which basically says where and when she's going to be. And she she realizes that that you know, like Gorda was probably off with her. Um, it's you know, the letter is a very very clear invitation to sex. And then we cut to Trudy, sorry, to uh, Lurleen in the hotel, and there's a knock at the door, and we expect it to be Gordo, and it's not, and it's actually Trudy shows up. And they have a really, really well-written, intense scene where Trudy basically pays her off and basically gives her some money and says, get out of here now, you're done. Like, I know everything, get out of here. Yeah, and then, Trudy's pretty cool. Yeah, she's pretty sharp. She's presented here extremely differently than she's presented in the Right Stuff movie. Um, and none of this is in Tom Wolfe's book at all, by the way. Um, and then uh, while they are having this sort of Mexican standoff in Lurleen's room, Gus calls. Um, and what Gus is calling is essentially to say, I'm not coming. But he doesn't really get the chance. Like, he... He picks up, you know, Trudy picks up the phone. Here's Gus. Sorry, here's Gordo. Sorry, I said Gus, but I meant Gordo. Here's Gordo on the line, and she hangs up on him. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting scene. Um, Gordo comes home, and he and Trudy have it out. Um, she says, you know, she asks him flat out, do you love me? And he says, yes. And then there's kind of this implication that they reconcile. And she acknowledges that maybe Lurleen had some appeal to him. And Gordo says, but I didn't go. Like, I could have gone to be with her, and I didn't. Right. So, I, you know, I'm always struck by what a different take this is on Gordo Cooper than it is in the right stuff film. You know, I mean, like it's it's just a it's a much more three dimensional portrayal of Cooper. It's also, you know, again, obviously a lot of this is heavily fictional, heavily fictionalized, but it's it's a very very interesting direction to take the Gordo Cooper character. I mean, I think they clearly decided that his marital drama, marital problems, make for an interesting dramatic aspect to the show, right? So that they follow it more closely and they give it they flesh it out a lot more and they use it much more as a dramatic device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, we then cut to the next day and Al is putting up an American flag in his yard. So he did respond a little bit to his father. Like the father pointed out, like, why don't you have an American flag in your yard? So he does bend a little bit. Like he pushes back on the father, but the father still has a hold on him. 
and he puts up an American flag. And while he's doing it, he's talking to his uh, his you know newly adopted daughter, and they talk about what America means. Like he says to her, "What does the flag mean?" And she says, "It means America." And he says, "America means the freedom to choose your own life." And then she kind of like picks this this mantle up and she says i want to choose my own name and she she actually asks to be called alan because you know she's very endeared to the fact that he stood up for her the night before against the father and then he right. suggests like well how about alice like perhaps that's a more appropriate name for an eight-year-old girl than alan um and then uh we we finish with a long scene on new year's eve uh, where there's a party where all the astronauts are, um, and uh, Glenn has been working the phones, and he believes, and he is under the impression that Kennedy is going to come to this NASA Mercury New Year's Eve event, and it's kind of be his big chance to really get in Kennedy's ear and convince him to support the program if he is elected. Um, and we see Glenn in the bathroom kind of practicing his speech. And then, you know, Shepard comes out of stall and realizes everything that Glenn is doing. And, he, you know, kind of like he sort of he's not too happy with Glenn's politicking. Let's just put it that way. Right. You but know, they're like, showing that Glenn has a predilection for this early on. Yeah. And like he's not afraid to sort of be a little again. We've seen this before. Like Glenn is not afraid to be nakedly ambitious. You know, like in terms of like, he, you right. know, he'll suck up to the program if it if it gets him what he wants. But but all that sucking up makes all the other six astronauts dislike him and not trust him. You know, right. like he doesn't whore around. He doesn't drink. He won't go out with them, you know. And on top of it all, he's doing this political nonsense. Was. I know the Mig Mad Marine himself, as they called John Glenn in, in Korea, a wuss. <laughs> um, and then uh, there's a there's an interesting finale to the episode where you are led to believe that Kennedy is in fact coming up, and sort of like a black official type vehicle pulls up, and and they you know Glenn runs outside. And this is it. This is like it worked. Like he pulled some strings. He spoke to the right people, and and Kennedy shows up, and he runs out to meet you know, then Senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. And in fact, he gets Jerome Wiesner, right? Kennedy's science advisor. Right. Um, and it the whole thing kind of blows up in Glenn's face because everybody knew what he was doing. It's sort of shown that he didn't have the political clout that he thought he had. Like they didn't get the Senator. They got the flunky who no one's heard of before. Um, and then the episode ends with Gilruth giving Glenn some shit about an, about all of his political machinations and inviting Wiesner to this thing. And then Glenn is looking like a fool with egg on his face. And then right as, you know, New Year comes, the stroke of 12, you know, Shepard kind of says to him, like, oh, happy New Year, John, parentheses, you dipshit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Was. Yeah, the whole thing blew up in your face and you look stupid and we all see exactly who you are. Right. Which is, it's kind of a callback too to the very opening minutes of the first episode. Like you can really kind of see like how all these seeds of trouble between Glenn and the other astronauts are planted. You know what I'm saying? Like, like their relationships are soured, you know? Yeah. Like there's tension between the other men, but not like the way that Glenn is really a man apart, you know, to his detriment, like really to his detriment. 
You know, Glenn yeah. might have been smarter to have been a little bit more one of the guys. And, you know, well, as I mean, history has shown that, you know, Glenn didn't get what he wanted, right? Obviously, we know Al, Al Shepard's going to be the first American in space. And, you know, Glenn, Glenn is the first American in orbit. It wasn't what they wanted. They all wanted that first Mercury flight. So, right. like, Glenn's politicking, it didn't earn him any praise from his colleagues. It didn't earn him any friends. And in the end, it didn't get him his political goals at the time. Right. So it's interesting. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, a lot happens in this episode. Like, that's a dense hour of television. Yeah. Once again, a lot of stuff happens. And, and it's better. It's better paced. It's better written. Craft is interesting. I, I think, again, like, you know, I think in here they say craft is missing a finger. Like I said, in real life, it was a burn. But, you know, like, craft is presented in a more complex way. Like, Lunny and Gilroth are now two-dimensional characters still, but craft is now a person in our eyes. You know what I'm saying? All this stuff about Lurleen, all this stuff about the Shepherd household, you know, and this they could have made the whole episode about Mercury Redstone one, and they crammed in all this other stuff. It's interesting, right? No, I think if you know, speaking of course from our lofty position making this podcast, I think if I'd make it, I'd probably if I'd made the episode, I think I probably would have made it all about Mercury Redstone <clears> one. It's interesting. I do still think the show is slow. You know what I'm saying? Like we're four episodes in, and Al hasn't flown yet. Like. You know, you know, it clearly like this is not going to do all of Project Mercury in one season. And yeah, I wonder that's if that's a, but I, yeah, I mean, but I wonder if that's a mistake. I mean, I mean, you could argue that if the right stuff could do all of Project Mercury in three hours or two VHS tapes as it was back in the day, <laughs> um, you know, do they really need more than one season to do Project Mercury? Like maybe they could have done all of Mercury in one season. You know what I'm saying? I mean, over on our From the Earth to the Moon podcast, uh, you and I had talked about how the first episode of that miniseries did Mercury and Gemini in an hour. In one hour. And they did it pretty well. Yeah. So, you know, like, I, I don't know. Like, I do think the show still suffers from pacing issues. Like, it is, it is slow. Like, we're four hours into this thing and nobody's flown. Like... You got to be pretty goddamn interested in the space program to hang in there. <laughs> well, but you know? you know what's what's interesting is they make this show much different than From the Earth to the Moon. You know, besides the fact that obviously From the Earth to the Moon really focused on the Apollo program, but there's more From the Earth to the Moon focused on very specific aspects of the development of Apollo at the time. You know, like the Lem was the focus of one episode, and they would sort of pick these specific facets that they would they would follow in that right. episode. And, and, and From the Earth to the Moon is really the story of Apollo. So they had to sort right. of show you Mercury and Gemini quick and dirty. But I mean, stylistically, um, they didn't do that with this show. They didn't pick a facet of the Mercury program and then explore that facet or that viewpoint. They are doing sort of more the traditional dramatic thing, which is have a bunch of interwoven themes per episode and then either extend them onto the next episode or resolve them in that in that show. Right. Depending. And it's sort of a more it's a more traditional way to make a show. And I think it makes it harder in that traditional way, it makes it harder to pace it in an interesting way. I think if they would have maybe focused on 
MR1, the, you know, the, the four-inch flight, um, let's say, as the main part of this episode. And then you'd done it, you know, the way um, in, in From the Earth to the Moon, they would, they would pick one viewpoint or one event like that and, mm-hmm. and then sort of focus on it. I think it may have been easier to sort of make it, you know, pace it better or make it more interesting, even though it's more specific. It's true. It's true. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I don't, you know, this, I mean, again, just to cut ahead a little bit, and I haven't watched this far, but the last episode of the season is Al Shepard's flight. So, you know, you, they're, they're making you go seven hours before you get to a flight in the last episode. It's It's, right. it's a lot. Like, it's... There's no other way to say it. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we'll see. I mean, I'm. I mean, look, I'm a lunatic, and I'm going to hang in there to the end because I'm super interested in this sort of thing. Um, but I don't know. Like, we'll see where episode uh, five takes us. Yeah. Um. Anything else you want to add? Should we wrap there? No, we'll wrap, and we'll see you next time. All right. uh, Yep. Coming up soon. Episode five. Uh, Again, thanks for listening. And uh, we will see you guys next time.